We're back. America calls Anthony Black and also Anthony Brown, which leaves Athul as the guy in the confusing middle. We're brothers, various shades of brown, bringing you the latest in tech, business, and startups mixed with a ton of sarcasm. Cue the music. David, you're welcome to sing here if you're into it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's your thing. Um, welcome back, everyone. We have a great episode in store for you today. I have a special guest. Um, I really become, I fancy this gentleman because he's. we just have robust conversations every time we chat. I think we met David during the pandemic through a mutual friend. I forget who. And then we just kind of hit it off. And we share many thoughts around media and technology. That's what we generally chat about. And then we chat about politics and a lot of different facets of that. And maybe some things we agree on, some things we don't agree on, but it's always a fascinating conversation, which I appreciate. Um, and I, I love it. And I'm going to get into some more of this in a, in a moment. But currently, and David's going to clean up and fill in the blanks as to what, give me give you the holistic pack, package. But David Grasso, I could say he's now a West Coast transplant from the East Coast. We've just learned again. Uh, it's it's it all the way solidified. CEO of Bold TV, which he's going to get into in a little bit. And previously, a podcast of Follow the Prophet. Um, all around great person to chat with all the time, anytime. And I actually was a guest on Follow the Prophet for a little bit. And then you kind of returned the favor, came in, you presented your company at a huge event we had. And then you actually spoke in my class as well around media and current trends and the future. And it was really kind of interesting for my the students to kind of learn about it at Gabelli. So I like people. The reason I wanted David on to the pod today is, look... I'm pretty bold about what I say, but I think David kicks it up a notch. <laughs> so um, I love it. And you know, we both we're, we're both we try to be respectful, but main thing is we are honest in a respectful manner. Uh, but you know, and then often there's a way for both of these terms to play together, and people don't realize that anymore, right? So, and David, the one the one reason I really a phrase that he said to me early on in our conversations was, "Hey, look, you remember when people could." be friends even though they didn't share politics. Back in the 90s, early 2000s, I guess this was. Up until, I guess, that Iraqi war, I guess that, that first war, that's when things started kind of siphoning and then now it's, it really got kicked up a notch in the last administration, whatever it was, right? Uh, so, and that was such a great point and it's true. You could you could go to dinner with somebody and you know we talked about this and you didn't share politics but you could have a good time and not be at each other's throats. Now family members are breaking up because of this we're hearing, right? So Thanksgiving dinner is coming up and there's probably going to be a lot more fights about things that are happening in the climate. So let's get into this. Um, David, give me a better picture as to everything you're doing because I know it's changed 110 times since we've chatted last. No, I work in nonprofit media, which means my job is kind of all over the place. I'm currently waiting to be assigned to a new project, and I, I really don't have a lot of information. I think the project that we're pitching right now, we're trying to get a grant to combat hate. I think we're all a little shocked by the Islamophobia and anti-Semitism that has kind of bubbled up right now from this war in the Middle East. And, you know, as someone whose family is mm -hmm. definitively foreign, it's something that concerns me. So I'm hoping to have more about that project in the near future, which might use platforms like Bold TV and other media projects that I've been involved in on and off for the past decade. Um, but yeah, talking about politics, really important these days, right? But somehow we're not able to do it. And, you know, there's some shocking statistics yeah. coming out right now that young people, you know, especially those who are on TikTok, really think that, you know, what happened in October 7th in Israel was justified. And then you have another side that really just 
wants to carpet bomb Gaza. And we've kind of lost our humanity in all of this. And a lot of my projects, I'm hoping from here on out, really focus on healing this partisan divide because we know it's possible. I live with someone who doesn't share my politics and a lot of us do as well. And our kids often won't share our politics, neither will our grandparents. A lot of our grandparents, especially if you're foreign, are very, you know, traditional, conservative, and somehow, you know, we make it work with them. So why can't we make it yeah. work with everyone else? Oh, that's fascinating. So is this new project? So Obol TV will still be in play if you entertain this new project. I don't know. You know, uh, the, the whole problem right now. So we've had so Bold TV has always been a vehicle for me to do media experiments. And it's by no means the only media project that I've done. We have a massive problem. Bold TV was not built by me originally, but it was built around social media. And if you look at the headlines right now, the amount of traffic go, coming from social media to news brands is officially zero. It's zero as of last month. It went from millions to hundreds of thousands to if you paid millions again to now it's officially zero. So if you ask news brands what they're doing, they're having to pivot very fast. So we don't really know what to do with this project because it was built around social media. If you remember from nearly 10 years ago now, social media brands asked organizations to build media brands based on their platforms. And that ultimately ended up being a really bad bet. Now, do I blame the social media brands? Absolutely not. I think they should have never been in news and it's probably the right decision to pull out of news, especially for a platform like Meta, which can, at this point, they've gone from, you know, being a company that never faced any criticism to now they, they just nonstop criticism, even if they're doing everything right. But the bottom line is for journalists is a very hard time. Our industry continues to contract. There are less jobs. And specifically, there are the partisan polarization that occurred in real life has now spread to the nonprofit scene. And what I see is a lot of a lot of oh, pressure boy. to either be very left wing or very right wing. And I'm hoping that changes in the near future. And that's affected my work a lot. Trying Even to navigate, you know, that's that complicated landscape. Yeah. What? 9-11 brought everyone together. Hey, Kumbaya, that was a great moment. Not a great moment. Sorry. The response to it was Americans coming together, which was great. Now, you know, the financial, re- the Great Recession, that was something that impacted many, but we became isolated a bit more. COVID became isolated by design. And then, and then you know, kind of in our local units, we were hanging out. What can bring us together, specifically after we saw January 6th, something like that, to people where people were so divided, it was like, hey, you know what, we should go attack a U.S. property as American citizens and think that's okay. So what can bring us back to normal? No one really knows what could bring us together. We thought the pandemic would bring us together and that ultimately created these two, mm-hmm. you know, bizarro worlds where neither side really makes sense, right? Political polarization. If you look at what Florida did, they opened yep. too quickly. And if you look at what California did, they closed for closing sake and really exported half a million people. So neither of these options are great, right? And I can't really think of a state that did it right. And we the same thing with January 6th. You mm-hmm. think that that would have you know brought America together when we had a literal insurrection. But, you know, people like Tucker Carlson like to say, you know, they were just tourists. <laughs> well, that's not the case. And then they, there's this false equivalency that the riots in 2020 were just as bad. Well, knocking down a target is bad, but it's mm-hmm. not as bad as knocking down the Capitol. But it seems like we've created our own little thought bubbles. Fortunately, what a lot of people in this bridge building space recognize, if we can if we can talk about this on a more positive note, is that we don't have to describe the problem anymore. 
right? Everyone knows there's a problem. Everyone knows we don't talk to each other anymore. Everyone knows that something has to change and that these biased bubbles are exactly that. They're biased. And we have to get out of those bubbles and, you know, consume content that we don't agree with. That's okay. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, that means you're reading the right thing. So give me that. So like, I remember we chatted about this and maybe it was on your pod or maybe you in another event. So the algorithms take over and they start, you know, you start, if you go down a path, start reading something, your algorithms take over and they start feeding you more of that and take you down a rabbit hole into that specific content. So you, some people never see the other vantage point. So how will they get access to it then? If you're saying, hey, let's educate or inform in a universal manner, how do you do that given the way that these are set up? You know, people have to decide to care. And that's really the problem these days is that, you know, in all fairness to the consumer, I can't really, you know, just trash the consumer. Life for young people is incredibly complicated. And as our freedom socially have increased, our economic freedom has decreased. So it's like what things are getting better while they're simultaneously getting worse. Right. I wouldn't be able to be married to my husband 10 years ago or we're right on 10 years. So we'll call it 11. Right. But 11 years ago, housing was like 70 percent cheaper. So am I happy I'm able to be gay married? Great. But, you know, I'd love to own a home as well. And I think a lot of young people have trouble caring because they really see a system that is rigged against them. And it's Mm. really hard to play catch up, especially when we're looking at someone like our parents' generation or maybe even just a little older than us, right? Even looking at the Xers, they had a much more fair shape than millennials. So a lot of us have checked out because we really don't see a way forward. When we look at the, Mm. the cost of living and, you know, uh, just the, the general markers, right? Just just doing the basics, getting married and having kids, buying a house, retiring is all beyond our reach. And that's why I feel a lot of people have, have just shut off their brains. And that's why the partisan warriors make all the noise because the, the exhausted majority is too busy just trying to survive. I want to dial deeper into what you just said. So I wasn't going to approach this yet. We were going to probably save this for later, but you brought up a great point here. So like millennials, let's call them. They've been shellacked in every manner of that term. So the Great Recession, major distrust in the system, real estate, banking, all of this. So they don't want to park their capital here. A, B, then COVID happened. So they've seen any times where there's been an accelerant to growth or in wealth, they've gotten beaten up sometimes. We all know about this transfer of wealth that's coming. And I think more young people should get into politics because not no offense, the two people who are like most likely going to be running are about 160 year olds, 60s year old, right? To combine. And I don't know if that's great for the country because they look at things that are happening now that impact their generation less than what's going to impact the one 20, 30 years later. I think if you could get younger folks, what incentivizes younger folks, 20, 30 year olds to get into politics? There's no capital. There's no money in it compared to banking, consulting, being a doctor, techie, whatever it is. So if this major transfer of wealth is going to come from their parents to them, maybe that could subsidize their lifestyle so they may take on a political role. Okay, they can, you know, some people are still going to waste it. They're going to go to get their Hermes and their you know, LVMH this, LVMH that. But some people might subsidize and then get into it and get that brain trust in there. They might solve something like Social Security, which the older generation is not incentivized to do because it's benefiting them right now and they can borrow from the future, right? Well, the younger generation, if you can get them in there at some capacity, Maybe this will do it. Will this be the impetus? This could be one impetus to get younger folks into politics because their lifestyles might be subsidized. They don't have to worry about trying to. Well, I mean, the average baby boomer is worth 10 times the average millennial. 
So there's a huge wealth gap to begin with. And then there's something called Medicare that doesn't get enough headlines. When you're 65, the government indemnifies 80% or 100% of your health care, depending on how poor you are and how many assets you have. And basically, no one pays into that. So what we have is socialism for the people who least need it in our society. Of course, not every baby boomer is rich. Not every millennial is poor. I'm speaking in broad strokes. But it is a grotesque misallocation of our resources to subsidize people like my parents who have nine houses and my husband and I have zero. But we're paying for their (laughs) Medicare. So, you know, and and the thing about boomers and with all due respect to my parents and all of our parents is um, they have different values. But what they have to understand is that when they shake down the treasury and our resources to enrich themselves when they're already richer, what they're doing is causing birth rates to go down and making the future more bleak. And they have yet to register that. So it's funny that these values voters, right, who are who don't like that America is becoming browner, gayer, more liberal, etc., are actually endangering our own species. People are having less children because it's too expensive instead of using all those subsidies for for you know the last week of life typically costs more than a million dollars a lot of times and we've all seen that with older people it happened to several of my family members why don't we invest that in children i'm not even asking for a handout for millennials at this point i'm asking for handouts to help children grow up in a world where they have health care education and all their basic needs met And we don't see that. We see the old prioritized because most studies show that in democracies, big uh, cohorts demographically tend to vote their interests. And we're seeing that exactly right now. We have a huge fiscal deficit. We have two 80-year-olds on the ballot. And everyone is tone deaf to actually what we need. The culture war is a bunch of bullshit that nobody needs to talk about. What we need to talk about is how We're going to spur our birth rate. God, I sound like Elon Musk. Um, (laughs) We're going to spur our birth rate, how we're going to, you know, usher in this AI revolution, how we're going to raise tax revenue without, you know, killing our economy. And there's so many easy, practical solutions to this as someone who studied public policy. But in the end, it's all distracted by this, you know, boomer sideshow And quite frankly, they haven't made good decisions in the past 30 years. What makes you think they're going to make good decisions now that most of them are over 70? I'm going to piggyback on that. From a policy standpoint, I completely agree with you 100%. Now, so there's they were notorious savers in that generation. A lot of that bled into my mindset. My mom and dad uh, really instilled that in me. And then I saw a splurge, uh, but then we'll we'll save a lot. We'll invest. I love, I'm, you know, a fanatic about investing. I just, I get geeked out on it. Now, there's that $70 trillion in net worth transfer that's going to be happening to this millennial generation. Some of them will blow it. Some of them will invest and save well and actually enhance their lifestyles. What you just said, America, you know, and I, you and I agree on this side of it as well. America is still the wealthiest country in the world per capita. Like, look at these beautiful, you know, these stats. We're rocking it as a country where our sheer size, we're generating GDP per capita, you know, for a country as large as we are, it's phenomenal compared to other large countries, right? And, you know, net worth went up 35, 40% in the last few years. That's a bit misleading as well because that's a lot of that's maybe tied up in the real estate. We have two thirds of our U.S. Um, folks are are homeowners as well. 
Uh, and some of that may come down a bit. So maybe that comes down five, 10%, you know, depends on what market you're in. I mean, that could happen. You've seen a resetting in Arizona, Tampa, you know, things like this, um, where it had gone up, but average net worth of folks has gone up families here, you know, by 20, 30% to like over a mill now where it used, used to be significantly less before. So there are, let me ask you this then very simply, given all these stats you and I just mentioned, yes, there are problems in the world. Why? Do Americans keep complaining about everything, given how better, how much better their lifestyle is than it was 10, 20 years ago? Unemployment's the lowest it's been, 60, 70 years, right? The great resignation, quiet quitting. These are things, but, you know, we have the, our workforce participation is the highest it's been in 20, 30 years, right? So these things are not, you know, crime is generally down. Some pockets you see stuff, we're going to get into that, defund the police. I think that was kind of a bullshit play. Uh, it should be more like, hey, retrain, if anything. Uh, there's isolated events that happened, but we overcorrected. And now you can walk into a CVS in San Fran or New York and just steal everything as long as it's under $1,000. No one's going to stop you, right? And this is bullshit that's happening. So jump on that for a moment. We are. Why do so many Americans complain given all the greatness that is here still? Because we have new problems. Our old problems are disappearing. Work from home is a quiet revolution that helps everyone and their mental health and whatnot if you're, you know, an educated and white collar worker, right? But at the same time, we have a massive loneliness epidemic. The majority of adults are single now. Right. So that's great that you have a little bit more money and maybe more flexibility from whatever. But we're literally alone, most of us. And it's it's an epidemic that's not getting any better. And it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter if your work is rewarding. If at the end of the day you come home and you're drinking your whiskey alone, life is sad. So and everybody knows that. So I think that's the big problem right now. And even if you are married, let's say, or have a partner or, you know, doing whatever you're doing, community connectedness is going down. And people, Mm. humans are very basic. They need affiliation. And I feel like affiliation and community are going down. People spend a lot of money to be part of communities, but it's not a sustainable solution to the disconnectedness we feel in the modern world. Oh, I completely agree with that, 100%. And there's this graph. I remember, coming, maybe it was on Twitter or somewhere else I saw it. Yes, I still go to Twitter. Uh, but it was it was basically saying as we get older, you know, you're with your, if you have kids, you're with them until around your 50s, and then they kind of go off and do their own thing. And then you see them less and less throughout your life as you get older. And as you get older, you spend more time alone. A, you know, people around in your circle aren't there anymore. Uh, parents tend to go, then your other siblings, whatever it is, family member, spouse, whatever it is. And then as you get into your, like, let's say late seventies, eighties, you spend a lot of that time alone. Uh, so exactly what you said. So these are things here, but what you brought up a major point was this is happening. This is pushed earlier in our lives now because of the pandemic, it seems like in the remote work that was something nice to commute, get, you know, getting it for here, for me here, living here in New York, like you say, get on the subway. I'm next to people in my socioeconomic class, higher, lower, whatever it is, we're all in the same thing. It's a community on the train, and then you're walking to work, then you're, and then you're in the office. Right now, if we're working from home three to four days a week, let's say, uh, we're not getting that. Aside from a Zoom call, a phone call here and there, and yeah, it can get, it can be unless your, if your mind is right, you can mitigate those things. And I've seen how it's kind of taken over some people, unfortunately. So you try to do check-ins with employees and people that you work and just say, hey, how you doing? 
it's just, you know, and, and it's not only that, right? Like as things have gotten better, they've gotten worse as well. You know how, how many hours a week I spend fighting just for the nonprofit and for my own personal life with subscriptions and vendors and credit cards and bank fees and whatever. Mm. Consumer life is dismal. Right. My work has gotten easier. I don't have to go to the office every day. You know, as things as certain things get easier, other things get worse. And I think that's what we're seeing in modern life. You know, our my health care, how much time I spend just battling bills, just being a basic consumer used to be easy. And I feel like it's way too complicated. And we've created this incentive system where, you know, when I go look up my health insurance, you know, premiums coming up in January, they're like four out of five households, you know, pay less than 10 bucks. Well, I guess I'm in that one in five household, right? <laughs> and a lot of this, you know, oh, that that pays, you know, more than a thousand dollars a month because I, I make enough money to, you know, be a normal person in the city of San Francisco. But what we've created is it's really easy to be poor. And it's really easy to be rich. But this upper middle class, which I would loosely call myself, we pay all the taxes in this country. We do all the work. We The whole, the whole society is run on our backs, but it's not built for us. It's built for somebody else. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's becoming a bigger and bigger problem for millennials because we used to always think, oh, if I just had a million dollars for a house, I would have a mansion. No, you can't even get a shack over here in yeah. California. <laughs> if I just made $200,000 a year, oh, wait, that's middle class now, especially if you yep. live in a big city. So the society is built to either keep you like poor and sub- get subsidies or have this ultra rich thing so that you don't mind paying $1,400 a month for your insurance. But what is mm. what about the rest of us? And remember, if you keep on squeezing that class, you're going to have a lot more unwieldiness because we are loud, we are educated, and everything is built on our backs. And especially people my age who have legitimately, I'm about to turn 40, and I've never made an important decision in my life because there's always boomers standing at each of my shoulders looking over me. So, you know, we're getting to the point where they have to pass the baton and we need policies that that encourage people to stand on their own economically, which might sound right. Right. We can't have just a system for the very rich and the very poor. We have to grow the middle class. And unfortunately, in the past 40 years, all we've done is do everything we can to shrink it. They're subsidized. So, you know, this is where we um, and, and you and I. I don't know if I should go down this path. But let's do it. What the hell? Uh, I, I hope I'm not wasting time here. So we've talked about this before. You know, I'm kind of a centrist. I'll lean. So I see there's great policies from conservatives and liberals. I see there's, but then I see a lot of bullshit that just fluff crap that they place that is a detriment to our society long term versus, you know, like uh, student loan repayments, putting those on pause. Well, that money wasn't saved. That was spent on frivolous things. And then when it comes due, that bill is due. Okay. What do you do now? <laughs> a lot of houses, admittedly. A lot of houses, though. Ex- a lot of those exactly. people bought Sure. Houses. Yes. That's fair. That's fair. A lot of them didn't though, right? So so now that it's coming due, so that what does that do? That, you know, pushing those off or stimmy checks, that just people think, oh, that's going to help me live and survive. Well, it's also leading to inflation, right? Uh, you know, and which is then now you're getting into this higher interest rates cycle. We just did a whole thing on uh, bonds last week. I won't bore you with that. Go listen to that episode. But so this is all leading to all of this, right? So this Inflation is a direct result of what we just pulled the money that we threw onto the fire last couple of weeks, which was meant to help sure. people get by, especially the ones who needed it. They're the only ones that received it, but then it led to this inflationary. Now, guess what? Trader Joe's, I go there for organic milk. 
It used to be five forty nine. Now it's six ninety nine. I don't like that as a dollar fifty more. But guess what? It doesn't bother me. It might bother somebody else, and that's that's a problem for them, right? And so how do you how do we mitigate those? So one, this is one assumption I've always had. So if you, a conservatives want to give everyone an equal start, which I I like that. Sure. Liberals want everyone to have the mm-hmm. an equal outcome, regardless of effort put in. I do not agree with that, right? So I agree with, hey, you come here if you got a hundred bucks in your pocket. I think they would say equal opportunity, but yeah, you know that's that's yeah. Uh, but it's, you know. but I do not. I don't believe if someone puts in ten percent of the effort, they should get a hundred percent of the result as the person who put in a hundred percent of the effort. I don't think they should have the same result. I think it's. Counter, hey, give everyone equal start, equal opportunity, equal start, and then whatever effort they put in on top of that is what they directly receive. Is my that's my my belief in all of this. I think the problem with li- liberals struggle with basic math, especially in government. <laughs> you know, uh, the Biden administration has done a fairly good job of you know. Have to say, I, 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 yeah. I'm not a Democrat, and I don't think the Biden administration is garbage. But their fiscal deficit is a nightmare, and all those wacko. Republicans that write their own opposition research, they have a point about the, the federal deficit. It's just too high. This is That's a peacetime or was peacetime as of a month ago, right? You can't be running a $2 trillion deficit. There are trade-offs. There are priorities, et cetera. You can't defund the war machine. That's our whole economy. You can't just defund boomers like I was suggesting because that's a political non-starter. You know, these are things we have to attack and no side is willing to do that. And that's why we have the situation we have. And in all fairness to these Trumpkins in, in the House, they have a point. The way we fund our government is broken and should be reformed. And I hope they take the ball and run with it. Now, Republicans, yeah. the huge problem is, is who do they appeal to? Who is this base? It's basically just over 50 years old and men. So there's not enough of them, right? With, with, with wedge issues like abortion, immigration, you know, everything else under the sun, there are literally not enough people for them to ever win the White House or have a majority ever again, especially with a nominee like Trump. So, yeah, we have a huge problem with both of our parties. One on the left, math. On the right, culture. And those are both really important. Can we have both math and culture? That would be great. <laughs> the beautiful thing is when even when these odds are stacked against them, like during Junior Bush, uh, he, they went and Karl Rove was brilliant. He said, let's go get the churches and show them that we are Christian first and then we'll win a lot of the Latino community over. They'll start voting with us. Otherwise, they would lean left generally. So there's a lot of these political things they do that are pretty smart calculations. Now, so so you just said something interesting. I do you have a, who do you think is going to win this election? If it does come down to Trump and Biden as it appears that it will, who do you think is going to win this? Well, we already had this election. It was in 2020. It's going to be Biden. Even if RFK Jr. enters the race, right? Most mm. polls show that Biden will still win. And the reason why Biden is the nominee is because, you know, Biden occupies a weird place that almost doesn't exist in politics anymore. He's the old white guy that knows how to talk to the people who voted for Obama, Trump, and then Biden again, who is this like, you know, Rust Belt coalition that apparently decides elections. It's like the new Florida. What Florida was in 2000 people, right? That's the number. Pennsylvania, Michigan. Oh, yeah. Well, in in, in Florida in 2000, it was like 500. But, you know, in the new states that really does define 
who is going to be president are Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. It is the Rust Belt. And remember, Joe Biden is from Scranton. By the way, Trump appeals to this very same base. So that's why Trump is winning the primary because, you know, he's very popular among the Republican base. But Biden occupies a very weird position in the sense that once Biden is gone, there probably won't be any Democrats that are able to pull that vote, at least in the short term. So I think it's a it's a it's. From a strategic point of view, it makes sense to me. He's going to win Pennsylvania. Biden is from Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Well, he's from Delaware more recently, but he grew up in Pennsylvania. He's going to win Wisconsin. He's going to win Michigan. Really? And these are the states you need to win today's You think he'll win race, Wisconsin, course, Michigan? Because it's that weird, like, it's that weird 1970s blue collar, Archie Bunker, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I voted for Trump and Obama and now Biden again. It's these. We don't even talk to these people. We we, we know they exist, but we don't even talk to them. We are disconnected. You being in the tri-state area, me in the Bay Area. But so they are the ones is, that will decide our next election, and that's why Biden will win. You don't think that people will look at the economy as it is inappropriately blame Biden for, hey, this higher inflation, which is not squarely on his shoulders. This all began. I'm not blaming either administration. I think they're both idiots uh, in this regard as far as handling it. But it, it was fueled by what they had, how they had to react in the, you know, during COVID and all that. And then all the money, the stimulus they threw on and then laxing. They got to inflation. I'm sorry, higher raising interest rates a little too late till it was already at 9%. But then I get why they were waiting. People can easily look back. 2020 vision, uh, rear vision is great. It's 2020, but it would have been difficult for them to raise rates in the middle of 2021 because shit was still hitting the fan. And it's so easy to sit there now and say, oh, you know what? They should have just raised rates earlier. Yeah, it's it's really easy to say that now. I know they hit 9.5%. We hadn't seen that in decades. But it's during the time when people are, you know, think horrible things are happening left and right. I, can, I understand why they did not pull the plug on that one and pull the trigger on that. So... Do you, you don't think he's going to get incorrectly blamed? Gas prices this high? I, I think he is. And and it's really, the, and this is where I'm sorry to all my friends in the Biden administration. I have more than a dozen friends working in that lovely White House. But, you know, the worst mistake they made isn't any substantive economic policy. It's this narrative that Bidenomics has made our life better. No, the Biden administration has done everything they can to try to prop up the economy. But no. We are not better off economically than we were three years mm. ago. Whether that's Trump or Biden's fault, I don't think it's either, right? I don't think mm-hmm. it's a fair criticism to either administration. But trying sure. to, like, make up this narrative made up in a lab that, like, oh, Bidenomics is working for you. No, it's not. And that is really <laughs> the biggest liability to this administration is the lack of intellectual honesty. Instead of saying, hey, we know things are tough. We're working hard for you. They're like, no, your life is better, which is, like, total gaslight. So, and that's yeah. the biggest liability behind the Biden administration. But, you know, we're talking about a very disconnected political elite, which is a fair yep. criticism about the left. It's like, no, go out to Trader Joe's and see how much your milk costs. And you're going to obviously notice that Bidenomics is not working for you. Does that mean yeah. Trumponomics is better? Not necessarily, but you need to have a better narrative to communicate with voters. And I can imagine. So you know, we've we experienced 2016 uh, um, external manipulation of you know polling and uh, and hey, sharing content with you that maybe isn't it's it's probably false. We we saw that with the whole Facebook thing at the time, and so I can imagine Russia, Ukraine. You know, there's going to be some infiltration into our media and to influence you know influence people to just you know they would love to have Trump in. 
because he might call it quits in this Ukraine support and Russia just walks away with what they wanted in the first place. I can see that because I think he's he's a guinea pig of Russia, Trump. <laughs> I can clearly say that, right? Um, you know, there's there's something there. Uh, you know, and so I mean, I'm not saying I'm not justifying the war, but I'm saying, hey, Russia, if it makes perfect sense for them to want to call, you know, let's let's try to help Trump get back in, and he'll help us here. Uh, you know, I don't know what Biden is. You know, Biden. Can you imagine Trump going over to Israel right now and standing up like legit? ambassador to foreign relations. Biden's doing a phenomenal job there. He's doing, he's doing a great job. And I'm not even a big Biden fan, uh, but I'm just saying, I can't see Trump do that. Trump's an, a, he's an idiot. I think Biden's not the sharpest guy either, but but at least he can stand up and look presidential in these, in these manners. Yeah. And people really need to notice that the war in Israel isn't about Israelis or Palestinians. It's about, it's mm-hmm. a proxy war through Iran, Absolutely. through Russia. The war in Ukraine and the war in the Middle East are the same war. These are a war of values. This is a war of autocracy versus democracy. And for some, somehow the right has failed to realize this. I don't understand how you can support Israel and not support Ukraine. It doesn't make any mm. sense. Um, and also, I don't understand how uh, people, especially who are, you know, for the Palestinian cause, don't understand that they're, those people are being used as little pawns and they're literally dying for, for, yeah. for these wars, uh, this fundamental war between the West and Russia and all of its proxies. So you need a more global view of what's going on. It's very unfortunate for all parties involved what's going on in the Middle East, as is what's going on in Europe. You know, Putin is squeezing Europe real hard as well with energy, et cetera. And, you know, the investments we're making to help our allies fight this war are nothing. And really, I don't understand. I know I talk out of both sides of my mouth. I said fiscal conservativeness before, but I feel like paying a few hundred billion dollars to avoid a trillion dollar war is a really, really good value. And I don't understand why there's this whole anti-Ukraine caucus and anti-Israel caucus, for that matter. No matter what you think about what's going on in those two places, this is a war against us as well. So and that's if it if it doesn't stop over there, it's going to continue until it follows us. home. That's a great point. So I, I would I sit on this. America could be number one forever if we just played our cars right and I think we're just going to self-implode potentially like a lot of, the, you know, the BRICS, a lot of them countries are now starting to self-implode a little bit, right? And, you know, economies are kind of falling off a little bit. We can get into China in a little bit. Russia's having issues. India might have an inkling of hope. Let's see. They're very fragmented over there uh, as far as government structure. They're not as uh, structurally sound as China as far as, you know, it's a, it's a one party system per se. So they work well together. And here in India, it's very fragmented. Brazil's kind of having its issues. Play with me here for a little bit. So U.S. is protected on both coasts by ocean. Our neighbors to either side have been relatively weaker than us, you know, Canada and Mexico. Can you imagine everything that we did with China the last 20 years? We enabled China to kind of enter this global prestige, right? Uh, we enabled them to get into the, you know, um, oh, my God. Uh, what is it? 20 years ago. We, we uh, uh, the, the World Trade Organization. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, so Senior Bush wanted to push it through. WTO. It got pushed Yep, yeah. exactly. Thank you. And then it got pushed through under the Congress under Clinton, and then it finally happened. Now we thought it was going to be an equal trade system. They've told us eventually, no, it's not going to be that way. It's going to be we're going to be the manufacturing hub of the world, and we're not going to be. So the trade went heavily in their favor, but it allowed us to live these glamorous lifestyles. We got things for cheap in on the U.S. Now we could have done similarly 
in some degree with Mexico. You could have phenomenal talent manufacturing like crazy. The scalability wasn't there because the sheer number of population is not there. But you could have had that. I, you know, any person I've met from Mexico is a very hardworking person, <laughs> right? And they could have done something similar. But oh, yeah. it would have been scary to have eventually. Mexico would have similar to China risen in power economically to have a neighbor that strong. We haven't had one of those in decades, uh, as, uh, centuries, you could say. Uh, a neighbor that strong, like a, it, being China's neighbor right now would be incredibly scary for America. Imagine if that was in Mexico, if we had done the manufacturing hub with them, which is now it looks like we're trying to do manufacturing in India. and Which is happening now, by the way. Yep, so, yep. Uh, half so my I think they're going to use Mexico, it. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, nearshoring is, the word nearshoring in English is in headlines all over the Mexican papers. They, nearshoring is now a word in Mexican Spanish because everybody mm, knows that manufacturing is headed to Mexico. And the yep. thing about Mexico, you have to understand, is Mexico is only doing well because of nearshoring, because the Mexican government does not control close to a third of its territory, which is controlled by cartels. And that is really scary Mm. for us. Now, would I call Mexico's problems as severe as China's? Absolutely not. Uh, Violence, obviously, is a huge problem, the drug trade, etc. But, you know, there's a great book, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend reading it. It's called The End of the World is Beginning Now. The End of the World is Just Beginning by Peter Zihan. And he talks okay. about the advantages that America has that you're touching on. And he says that most parts of the world, minus United States, Canada, Mexico, are going to get markedly worse. And for a lot of the reasons you're just describing right now, China for its po- a demographic bomb, India, you know, and maybe we'll save this for another day. I finally sat down with an Indian guy from India, not like you, you know, a, no. a, a real <laughs> legit, Chicago. you know, like <laughs> just got legit, here dude. Indian. My parents we got here, a lot right? of, you know, <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> it's okay. I'm not a, I'm not a real Hispanic either. I'm a gringo Hispanic, but you know, I sat down and the Indian, the problem with um, India is exactly what you're saying. You know, they're, they're so divided. They're so fractured and they're not very aggressive in their international affairs. You know, they just, mm. he just basically explained to me like, oh, it's easier for us to be pro-Russian just because, you know, whatever. Like that's, mm. India has so many internal problems that they're, they have trouble, you know, expressing their right. might outward. They're very inwardly focused because they're still focused on, you know, all the basics, infrastructure, right. public health, right. Right. public safety, et cetera, et cetera. But there is no obvious heir to American power. What we're going to no. see is a multipolar world. And really the biggest news story that we're, we're missing here, which is very emphasized in Peter's book, is about declining birth rates and how the birth rates in every country across the world, yep. minus a few sub-Saharan African countries, has fallen off a cliff. And it, in fact, fell off a cliff before we were born. And now we're just starting to see the results. So you're right. looking at places like Western Europe, East Asia becoming depopulated. And that's a huge part of the economic story growing up, uh, coming up. So I think the world is going to look great for American power, not because we're a shining beacon on a hill like we'd like to be, because but because everyone else is that much worse off. We're, we're less shitty than other places right now. Well, this is the best country in the world. It always has been. Right. I yep. just think, uh, you know, the, the, the only fair critique I hear about America is that everything in America is a business, right? And we have that cultural problem, That's which fair. is for better or for worse, right? Which is why we're you number know, one. I'm I'm that no, no, everything is a business. <laughs> Education is a business. Healthcare is a business. Housing fair. is a business. We financialize like 
everything. We financialize religion. You touched on that a little bit before. <laughs> That's fair. You know, everything in America is a business because but but is it better the other way? No. <laughs> so, you know, I, yeah. I don't have a better system in lieu of the American way of doing things. But yeah, making everything a business, probably not the wisest idea. Probably why student debt is so high. Probably why oh, yeah. most people go broke due to health insurance. But there's been inflation like crazy in academia forever. And it hasn't matched with uh, salaries. Right. Uh, as you as you exit those universities. You know, you said something. So Peter Zion, I have not read it, but I heard of, I've heard it about it on a podcast. It's on my list of to read, but I heard his main statement was China is done in less than 10 years. That's the major bold prediction he made. So I'm curious as to reading all the context around that and how he set that up. Uh, but I, I heard about it on some things, uh, on some podcasts, I believe. So I, okay. So we're, we're in agreement there. Yeah. Let's see Mexico. Let's, if they play it right, they could be phenomenally powerful moving forward. You know, and it's, you know, countries around the world, you see like whichever one has a very bright future. Yeah, I agree. Mexico has an extremely bright future and a lot of Latin America, because we have our own hemisphere, if they can solve a lot of their domestic problems, you're going to be shocked at how well these economies perform because they have healthy demographic profiles. They have a lot of raw resources and, of course, proximity to the largest economy in the world, which is Canada, U.S., Mexico. Yeah, and sharp people, too. So, like, all you need really is of any country – five to six percent to be you know incredibly sharp that you can work with and then everything else falls from there it's like any major company here in america right you need five percent six percent a plus performers the rest of us can be b plus you know and like google let's look at them as an example you don't need everyone to be an a plus performer but they can crush it in their market once they own it right um so another thing that we saw we were touching on the middle east you know the third person in power now in the house of you know from congress in the house is now a very religious person yes any countries that are incredibly religious first and proper policies second are far behind uh western cultures or other cultures that are put you know policy and growth in front of religion, not to diminish religion, but just shouldn't be the one that's governing your people as from from a power standpoint. Is that scary to you that he's a third in line? Like, hey, Biden, Kamala, you never know, Biden, you know, dude's up there. <laughs> Kamala, uh, he's third in line. Is that scary? You know, I don't have a problem with the religious people. I would consider myself nominally religious. You know, this country was founded on religious freedom. I think the new the new speaker, Mike Johnson's obsession with Fair. gay sex is a little concerning. And typically the rule is in among males. Yeah. If you if you think about, you know, uh, you know, homosexuality more than, you know, <laughs> than a normal person, you're probably struggling with it. So, you know, it's just I see a situation of a guy <laughs> who's, you know, really that's not really the issue or the battlefield he should be dying on even if 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 you don't if you don't like being gay then just don't do it right why are you obsessed with it and i know a lot of christians who are not obsessed with that issue and i think that it would do them injustice for me to just group them all into one you know bucket because that's not the case yeah, I've had sure. a lot of people who sure. consider themselves intensely religious, including my parents, who have been more than accepting. Mike Johnson is an outlier and does not deserve to call himself, you know, right. Christian in many ways. Let's see. I hope like because that could impact and these kind of things could hurt like Trump's reelection play because they're going to look at the whole abortion 
uh, adjustments that were made with the Supreme Court, right? And many people say, wow, they've gone a bit far because the majority of Americans believe that, hey, a person's right, a female's right to her body, right? As far as, hey, being dictated by elsewhere. So now it's leading to unsafe practices, people traveling for that, for abortions and all that. So let's see. These things might come back to haunt Trump with the election. Who knows? Let's see what's going to, how it plays That's out. That's definitely going to come back yeah. to haunt him because even as someone like our, our household is generally pro-life, which is now an epithet, mm-hmm. right? But we think that the government shouldn't be involved Fair. in those decisions. Yeah. You know, it's literally none of our business. So, and we're not women, we're two right. men. So, you know, like me, if it were my daughter or if I somehow magically, you know, impregnated a woman, I would not be for her getting an abortion. But that's very nice in a theoretical sense. I don't have to deal with the actual consequences. So I, I feel like it's above my pay grade to comment on what a lady should do. With that's, her fair, that's fair. That's um, fair. When we, okay, so now let's look at the future, right? So venture, I'm in the venture space, venture investing. We, we try to predict the future. A, we either try to play a long part or we try to get behind things that we see two, five, ten years from are going to be valuable markets and plays. So for the longest two, three years ago, we talked about this. I think the last time we were on a pod together, uh, we, you know, it was crypto. It was every, it was absorbing all of the attention and all of the venture money. A lot of it was wasted. There will be some good things that come of it. Eventually, I do believe in the space a little bit, but not all the extravagant uh, come rocket and bullshit rocket, whatever the hell they're trying to sell us at the time. Okay. So now, now the new play is AI. Right. So AI is the first thing that I'm hearing from every industry executive that I speak with that is from since the mobile phone that is going to impact every industry, which is this is there's a truth to it. And we know the scary Terminator stuff. That's probably years off. <laughs> it can happen and it probably will happen. And then it's going to be. Well, it's going to be, well, they could look at us by saying, I'm just going to say some adversary of anyone could sit here and utilize it for anything like a gun could be used for what it's used for or it could be done to shoot up people that are innocent, right? So it's going to be the person who has it in his hands that's going to be the manipulator of this AI and to make it either good or bad. Now, that's happening. Now, so just all teeing all it up, AI is going to have dramatic impact in every, every, every industry. And I said this, you and I chatted about this earlier. Scott Galloway beat me to the punch. We recorded it, uh, but we didn't release that episode because there were some other errors on it we had to clean up. Um, Ozempic, I think, or these times, I forget what they call like, GPT one or two or something like that. Um, I think that is going to have as much of an effect on the economy as AI will across the world. Cause it, apparently it, it's good at it's curtailing habits aggressively, meaning food intake, right? So that's how that you're seeing the Kardashians getting all, you know, Chloe's looking like uh, Kylie now and Kim. <laughs> so I'm not knocking it. Uh, guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure. <laughs> Go for it. There's a lot of plastic in those parts. I'm just saying. But um, don't stand too close to the sun. But Ozempic and all these types of, you know, GPT uh, or whatever they're called, GPT-1s or chat, I'm getting mixed up. Look, look, if you look at it this way, we are designed in America to, everything is for us to overindulge. We're heavy consumers. We're a consumption economy. So that's an overconsumption. And this is a byproduct of us being, like we just alluded to, the wealthiest country in the world. So we ha- it's a symptom of it. So we overindulge in everything. Our meal portions are quite large compared to European countries or other countries, let's say. Oh, yeah. And, you know... Uh, nutrition, we know, we have deep knowledge of it. Do we exercise it in our daily lives? Many of us don't, right? So 
we are designed by design, you know, all the commercials and all this, all the advertisements we see, we, you know, generally as a population, I don't think you and I, but generally as a population, people overindulge, they get eat fattier foods, sugary, fattery foods that they shouldn't be doing at a higher rate than they should be when they're younger and they develop heart disease, diabetes. So then we can hand them off to the medical construct, medical infrastructure of hospitals, doctors, clinicians to clean it up. That's a huge, that's probably like one fifth to two fifths of our economy, government, Defense is a major portion, but this is a major chunk. If this shifts, that's huge. We're not even talking about other impacts. Like, okay, you're going to McDonald's less people generally, not you and I, but others. Uh, you know, you're 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 consuming less alcohol. Uh, all of these kind of things. Do you believe that Ozempic ha- could have as much impact on the economy as AI? I think medications like Ozempic could have as much of an impact on AI. Because remember, it's not yeah. just Ozempic, it's Wegovy, it's semi-glutamide or however yeah. you pronounce it. Yeah, I'm just generalizing it yep. out loud. Yeah. Um, AI is a really big area. I think when we talk about AI, we tend to conflate a lot of different technological progress under one little buzz term. So I would have to probably vote for AI. If we were comparing apples to apples, I would think that therapeutics to combat the obesity epidemic would probably be as impactful if that makes sense. So we would have to generalize because AI is a very general term while a specific class of medication, that's just the first generation of this class of medication. We're going to see a lot more. And like any other, like if you were alive in the 90s, remember when everyone took FemFen and lost weight and then realized that it damaged your heart, right? So I think a lot of times we'll see different classes and different iterations of these medications. I think that that will have a huge you know impact on the world i'm someone who has struggled with my weight my whole life as well in fact i'm still fasting today it's only one o'clock here though but you know it's one of those mm-hmm. things that nice. i ai and the way we interact with work will be fundamentally changed absolutely if we can also combat the obesity epidemic at the same time our healthcare costs would come crashing down so, but to me, apples and oranges, and hard to say which one's more impactful, just predicting. I think it's anyone's game. But again, yeah. obesity drugs and AI, both general terms. It's, and yeah, absolutely. And if you could, so it, we're not getting pitched as many of these. I, I forget the names of them, but Ozempic is the one that comes to mind. But the chat, G, not chat, G, the GPT-1 or 2s, whatever they're called, that monoglycer, something, whatever, the, whatever that class of drugs is called, mm-hmm. you know, it's... Right now, we're going to, they're going to figure out a way to monetize it. Healthcare, if they're losing capital to take care of these sick care patients, diabetic, obese patients later in life, heart disease patients, they're going to find a way to make their money back. They might lace them with something. Who knows? What they, whatever they're going to do. A, B, but if I think we'll see some sort of venture play, like I'm going to see, I'll share it as we start seeing these decks come our ways. Hey, you know, invest in our company that solves this as a counter or to, leverage these Ozempics, the gen, I'm using it as a general term, these types of this drug class, because, hey, we're this for fitness. Now, fitness is going to change healthcare facilities or watching a movie might change or your alcohol experience might change in a bar, whatever it is. You know, social gatherings may change. We might now try to launch more businesses where people are, you know, around fashion and retail because people feel sexier and they're shopping more. And then they might, what else can you unlock with that? So I do think we're far away from the other unlocks outside of health, but I think there's going to be some interesting business plays that people are going to come up with. People are incredibly innovative in the number one country in the world. (laughs) So let's see. I'm excited. I think a big business play, which goes back to where we started this conversation, 
is anything in the boomer economy is going to boom. Yeah. No pun intended. Yeah. So you want to talk about Ozempic and AI? Yeah. yeah. Those are two great starting places for a lot of this technology, especially as aimed as the highest income group, which, you know, Fox News likes to call 65 to dead. Yeah. Right. <laughs> what the head of Fox News, who is now passed Roger Harris, called yep. this 65 to dead crowd is the richest uh, cohort in America and the money is burning a hole in their pocket because they know they don't have a lot of time left. Mm. I see this with our parents' generation. Yeah. So if you want to look from a VC perspective, anything that has to do with aging, health, you know, um, experiential uh, stuff for that cohort, oh, yeah. it's going to boom and it's not going to end until they literally heal over and die. Yeah. So you want to make money, go after the highest. And they'll have the next group uh, taking their place, right? Uh, who comes after them? Gen X then, I guess, after boomers. So they'll take their places needing those same services. Like, right? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like loosely an X or Y. Yeah, fair, fair point. Fair, so that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so, right? So the, you're, there's never, like nursing homes, there's never <laughs> going to not be a need, in my opinion, for these types of things. And like, if you can develop like a more of a holistic play around it and make it in a very humane support system at the end of their at people's lives, right? The last 10, 15 years. If you can make it a humane experience for them versus just a a, a cell where we throw somebody's body that's, you know, I don't like that feel or look. I've seen, I've, <laughs> yeah, let's see. So the number one country in the world, we decided that, um, and we didn't decide, it just is. I'm just <laughs> okay, one last thing should we touch on? Uh, do you want to jump into media rights? You want to say that for another time? Sure. Um, hey, let me let me t- ask your opinion. Media is a mess. Yeah, no. You know, oh. let me ask you. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's close out this China loop one more time. So China is laden with debt. We know this, right? Initially, they were doing it organic, organic growth with homegrown capital. Sure. But then they saw, hey, we could expand 10, 20x what we're doing by taking on debt. Smart move. Not knocking them. That's how they got Venezuela, Africa. Their debt is on a different balance sheet than ours. Exactly. Their debt is local and state. It's almost like. It's like Kentucky's going broke, the equivalent in China, not the federal government. Here, our local and state are very lean, and then our federal government's very top-heavy, which is actually backwards for most open economies because foreigners buy your right. But anyway, right. so, ex- you know, exactly, exactly. So you know, now that these some of these debt structures come out, we saw what Evergrande, things are happening. Things are starting to implode there as well. The aging population, which is going to be, they've never, everything was incredibly productive. Everyone was incredibly productive. Now that they're not going to be of a productive age, how will they deal with that? We've heard things, right? Uh, they might just, <laughs> who knows? Because <laughs> they have uh, uh, leisure with how they can deal with certain things uh, that are taxing. Because it might, if it's, they can look at Japan's example of the same exact thing that happened and how taxing it was for their economy, right? Uh, aging population that wasn't as productive anymore. How do we deal with all that? So there's two things that are happening. China, and I want to get your opinion on this. China is stockpiling oil from Russia and Iran. A, those two markets have lost the Western market. So there's, you know, they're selling at a discount. So anyone, India is in the same boat. They're acquiring quite a bit because they need it. They're uh, an emerging economy. They can't afford to pay. If they can get something at a lower price, why wouldn't they? It's like going to Nordstrom, you know, Rack versus, you know, Saks and LVMH type of thing. So if they're buying all this cheap oil, they're stockpiling it. There's two things I'm thinking of. Okay. A, maybe they're thinking, hey, you know, like we, there's a lot they want to, okay, maybe there's an invasion of Taiwan they're thinking of and they know that once they do that, you know, there'll be sanctions placed on them and they won't receive oil from the other markets as they have been. So that's one thing I'm throwing at you. Uh, all right, let's run with that one first. Okay. Do you think that's a major reason of what's going on? I mean, A, is it just that it's cheap that they're stockpiling or is it two, maybe there's some more 
plausible reason. That's a violent in nature. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, the China issue before we had all these issues with Russia and now the Middle East, I would have probably uh, advocated a more aggressive posture with China. But I feel like, and maybe this is the inner libertarian in me, with China, less is more, right? Mm. We do have an economic relationship with them that has been significantly rebalanced thanks to the Trump administration's and now Biden administration's policy of some protectionism, right? Which goes against every fiber of my being, but has really helped, you know, rebalance this economic relationship. So to me, China has enough problems and it's really right now we need China to, number one, not invade Taiwan because that's where all the world's chips come yeah. from. And number two, we need to help them bring down their emissions significantly. Fair. And no climate deal without the United States and China is worth its weight in shit. So to me, those are the issues that we need to focus on with China. Um, their inner politics are not great right now. She has proven to be a very controversial leader, turning his back on many generations of leaders that were open for economic development, improving the average, you know, uh, living situation for regular Chinese people. And I hope that in the future they can rechannel that energy because it benefits the entire world. It's so phenomenal. So they were they were open economy, then they became authoritarian, closed for quite some time, and then in the last 20 years they became very capitalistic and running it, and now they've become more authoritarian in a sense because they, now they've caught up in a phenomenal way. They brought, they had... They had much more. Just there was a time they, they, they China versus India back there. We're like, oh, India, India is better English speaking. They beat the shit out of India as far as growth uh, globally, and they, it's because they double down, triple down on what they oh, could. Oh yeah, now, India's trying to do that manufacturing hub, and they can. There's a lot of talent that they've exported India everywhere. You can see, you know, but now a lot of it's kind of you know the brain drain is becoming the brain gain. They're coming back and they're setting up shop in India, and you know, and, the, and I have Mitt Romney to thank. He's the first FDI foreign direct investment uh, under when he was at Bain, and then Microsoft and everyone followed suit afterward. And shortly after, so you can credit him to the I think it was eighties, nineties, or something like that. That's why I was a big fan of his. I voted for Obama at the time. Uh, just because he was mainly because he was a Chicago Bears fan. I'll be honest. <laughs> a shitty ass team that we both supported. <laughs> but I was down with Mitt Romney. I love it. We would be so lucky. We would be so lucky to have a, a, a choice between Mitt Romney and Obama. <laughs> yes. You know, we would be lucky to have a choice between Bush and Kerry. We would l- be lucky to have anyone except <laughs> we got? what we have today. It's so funny because Gavin Newsom. The general decline of politics is noted. Gavin Newsom from your hood, he looks the part. He's a good looking guy, 6'4. And I don't, because we clearly know, because Obama had one term of Senate and then he became president. Trump had zero shit, wasn't a great businessman either, became president. We're not looking at qualifications anymore. We're looking like, hey, are they charismatic? Do they fit the part, right? Biden was the one in the last several years that had political experience, you know, for a lifer, per se. And he's been okay. You know, he's, you know I was surprised at what he was able to pass through in the first couple of years uh, relative to some of his counterparts, you know, last couple of administrations. Um, but yeah, I still think we should have someone else there besides these two, though, <laughs> moving forward. Um, maybe we should, instead of jumping, I was going to... what, I, And maybe I'm not as... I think Gavin's a great person and maybe I'm not as liberal as he is, but at least and fundamentally he's forward thinking. He was in China last week asking them to reduce their emissions. Popped into Israel, he China. is thinking yeah. about of an economy post oil. 
Yep. Right. He's he's at he's at least forward looking. And mind you, I don't like a lot of stuff that Gavin does. Definitely. There's been some oopsies and upsies here in California. But just the 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 philosophical underpinning that we're looking ahead and not backwards is definitely an American value that I treasure. And I think that makes Gavin Newsom a very, it is nice. I mean, but California is the, you know, he's a lot, my friends, I think 90% of my friends who live in California do not like his politics, uh, you know, and 10% of them maybe do, but then, you know, it's the fifth largest economy in the world. If you check just California and pin them against the 187, whatever recognized countries by the UN, it's the fifth largest economy and they have a surplus. I think by right now, I believe, uh, but yeah, are his politics so far? It was a surplus. Now it's a deficit. Listen, they have a taxing problem here. They have a spending problem here. But the bottom line is there's a definite homeless problem here in the big cities. But outside of the big cities, it's not a problem. The problem with California is California is a victim of its own success. And I think a lot of places like Florida and Texas are going to start seeing the same types of problems. And it's not really political. These are diseases of affluence, just like obesity is. So before you, you know, throw rocks in a glass house in these states, you have to realize when you have a bunch of money showing up, when you have unlimited wealth, it creates wealth gaps, which necessitates transfer payments, which necessitates tra- taxation. Like, ask the European countries about this. There is a reason why California has gone down the path it did. Do we all like it? No. Is there an alternative? We're not sure. Oh, I love it. Okay, you know, what? let's end there today. I think we gave everyone some phenomenal nuggets. That's why I love having you on. Uh, and we're, I think we should do this every every other day. Uh, <laughs> from, from my own sanity, I think it's like a nice therapy session. <laughs> it's fine, yeah. No, because you're, you're good at this. And you, you I like how you're just, you make bold statements and you back them up with facts, you know, versus let's just, you know, um, others, you know, Sleepy Joe reading from a teleprompter or Trump making up bullshit. I just like us, you know, have a casual conversation and we bring what we know about it and uh, learn from each other along the way. Okay, this is awesome. I love it. You had a go-to, you had a whiskey of the day that you wanted to recommend. It's a go-to. Yeah, so it was was, uh, Glenn Livet and it's made in, uh, so it's of course from Scotland because it's a scotch, but they put it in uh, Caribbean rum barrels. So it actually makes it a little sweeter. I'm more of a bourbon guy, but that has kind of been a good stand in to kind of bring me across the pond and, you know, introduce me to a different type of consumption. My brother has one of the largest whiskey collections I've ever seen. Who's this guy? I need to meet him. about whiskey and me (laughs) is I tried everything backwards. Really? I've tried I tried all the successful stuff and now I'm I'm hurting, you know, with my Trader Joe's bourbon. That's so. funny. Ooh, don't, <laughs> I don't, need to go Trader back Joe's to my brother's all, house. Okay, and get I my love Trader Joe's for all their pumpkin flavors during this time of year, but man, don't ever buy their liquor aside from the, their wine is great. But they have they don't have that great oh Glenlivet they've had their there. Wine I've seen is Glenlivet there. Yeah. Okay, I'm not gonna vouch for their scotch collection, but yeah, sure. Um, where's your brother? Is he on the what East Coast? No, he's in Florida like everyone else. So, okay, East Coast, no. gotcha. West Coast is my husband's family, the Mexican side. Okay. The, 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 and, and half of my dad's family is here in California as oh, well. Oh, nice. But okay. my, uh, my family is all in Central Florida, right by Disney World, and that's where the whiskey collection is. So gotcha. if you're ever there, let me know because uh, he has a rule. If you, bring, if you bring an expensive bottle, you unlock the top shelf. Oh, shit. I'm in, man, because I'm all about that life. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) 
I, I love. Next time I you have some, one of those bullshit conferences that are always in Orlando, let me know. You know so. this this podcast was a direct uh, evolution from. We used to have this thing called the Daddy Scotch Club where I used to live, uh, and we every guy would bring a bottle. We would get a, get to escape from our young kids and our, our wives would let us do this. We like five six of us get together. We just talk business, tech, and culture, like we're doing. I talk shit and then sports, and then we'd bring a bottle. We try each other's bottles. We tried to start a podcast then it didn't work. Uh, couldn't commit, and then so us three started it. Uh, Anthony and I and Clyde. So here we are. Um, this is awesome. I love it, man. We got to get together again soon to do this. Uh, you're, you have great vantage points on many different things that I love to talk about as well. So let's do this again. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thank you.